You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Ewan, have you been watching White Lotus? I haven't. Neither have I, but apparently everyone else has, including our opinion columnist Therese Raphael. She's made a reference to it in her latest piece about the pressure on Nadine Zahawi, Conservative Party chairman, saying that uh, this latest unfolding scandal has a quality that's both painful to watch and impossible to ignore. She says it's a niggling revelation, unsettling the smooth veneer. Perhaps that'll be the theme of the conversations at Chequers as the Cabinet's meeting there today. Yeah, possibly awkward. Yeah, very nice piece by uh, Therese. I think the key thing is how long is this process going to take this independent inquiry? These things can and rumble on a long time. A cynic might say that is a part of the point of them. One thing I would say, though, today, uh, on Thursday, is none of the newspapers have got this on their, their front pages. So that is good news, I think, for Nadim Zahari. Yeah, true. Although the whole situation a bit less than ideal for Rishi Sunak. Um, and something else that's been labelled not ideal is the findings of Bloomberg's ad- analysis of the government's levelling up policy, which shows that the UK's poorer regions were falling even further behind London and the South East. Well, our political reporter Joe Mays spoke to the minister in charge of the policy, Michael Gove, about the findings while on a busy train to Manchester. It is concerning because uh, it it reflects some of the broader problems that we're facing as an economy overall. So um, people sometimes find it depressing when we return to the uh, long economic tale of the pandemic and refer to the situation in Ukraine um, because, you know, it can sometimes seem as though uh, we're using those as an excuse for... um, the, the difficulties that so many are facing. But it's impossible to understand what's happening in our economy without looking at both of those. And again, one of the particular challenges that we face is that the existing health inequalities that we had in uh, in the North um, have been exacerbated because of COVID. And the existing economic challenges that we had in the North um, have been uh, disproportionately doubled down on by what's been happening in Ukraine. Because again, uh, in the north of England, you have a high proportion of jobs in manufacturing. Manufacturing is obviously more reliant on uh, the cost of energy. Um, and so these twin troubles have made the task of levelling up um, at once more challenging, but also more urgent. 
the critics say that for leveling up to occur, you need a pretty massive reorientation of spending mm. and political power mm. with massive impetus behind it, and that the data is showing that that isn't really happening. Oh, I think, again, the, the data is absolutely vital, but it's important not to look in the rearview mirror. So, uh, again, even as we speak, um, we're just a couple of days away from the signing ceremony for a new mayoral deal, as I mentioned, in the northeast. Um, uh, at least two thirds of the population of the north benefit from devolution deals, and we want to extend that further. Um, if we're looking at the way in which uh, everything from research and development to arts council spending is changing, every new arts council uh, pound that's uh, uh, being committed in the spending review is being spent outside London and the southeast. And just in terms of thinking about last year, mm. four secretaries of state, yourself and then two others, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. back to yourself. Do you think that kind of upheaval in Whitehall has perhaps distracted from the project or held back decisions that might have been made? And well, obviously, um, uh, it's not ideal to have had some of the political turbulence that we had last year. Um, but again, uh, that is behind us now. And the important thing is... Um, uh, you know, paraphrasing Oasis, not to look back in anger, um, but to uh, 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 instead invoke Fleetwood Mac and don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Yeah, some 90s song references from there from Leveling Up Secretary Michael Gove, speaking to our reporter Joe Mays on a train to Manchester. Sadly, no more song lyrics in our next segment. We sat down with Joe to dig into the details of what the latest update to the Bloomberg Leveling Up scorecard shows. Yeah, so the overall picture is a stagnating or indeed worsening attempt to level up Britain. And we've updated our scorecard with six months worth of data bringing us up to December 2022. And as you say, overwhelming majority of the country is still falling further behind, despite that, that key promise from the Conservatives. And indeed, in the red wall, those seats that flipped from Labour to Conservative that really won the election, it's got even worse. Now, 97% of those seats are falling further behind. It was 92% back in May. So in the areas where it matters most for Sunak, there's just, there's just, the data is just not showing any real sign of that levelling up happening. Now, Joe, this is based on some, some really fascinating data, isn't it? Which, as you would expect at Bloomberg, but just remind us how you do this. What, what are you measuring? So we went to the government's levelling up white paper, which set out 12 missions it had to you know, close wealth disparities in the UK. And they are targeting things like pay, productivity, you know, well-being, the affordability of housing, all these different measures, which you know, if you did make improvements, clearly your area would get better and you'd catch up with London and the South East. So we, we, we've taken those exact same metrics. We've taken the government on their own metrics and we're tracking it using government data, ONS data, the Treasury, all official sources. And we're, we're doing this exercise of saying, OK, since 2019, when the promise was made, are you closing the gap with London and the South East or are you falling further behind? And that's how we categorise every constituency in the UK. And that's how we build this picture. So it does seem to be quite a big difference depending on where you look at. First of all, where have there been improvements since we last spoke to you about this? So we've seen some modest improvements in the east of England, so seats that are already quite close to London, and also Northern Ireland has done quite well. And in terms of the areas that have fallen back, we have areas in the northwest, for example, that have that have struggled, and also the east and west Midlands. So I think the east of England finding is interesting because it shows that government is making progress, but these are areas that are really still quite close to the capital. So it's kind of can you level up the whole country and not just necessarily you know the hinterland of, of London? Yeah, the east of England is, is, is broadly a, a relatively prosperous region, isn't it? Although, of course, there are pockets of deprivation as there are everywhere. I thought interesting, 
looking at your maps, beautiful maps actually on on, on the story. And uh, interesting, you you've put, you picked out the red wall seats, and barely any of them seem to be making progress. Uh, it really it really stands out that. Yeah, and I guess that's what's quite worrying for the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak in that there's, what, 36 of those seats. You know, if you lose all of those, you effectively lose your majority. And it was there that the levelling prom- leveling up promise was so, you know, so, so keenly heard, keenly felt. And indeed, for many people in many of those areas voted Brexit, indeed thought that doing so would lead to the area being revitalised. They might catch up with the London and the South East. And yeah, as our data is showing, that gap is, is widening. That's certainly... D- doesn't bode well for the hope of the Conservative Party to try and retain those seats in the next election. I mean, for sure. And you, you have the Conservatives at least 20 points behind Labour in, in most recent opinion polling. And yeah, th- th- that that kind of economic picture suggests that would you ne- would you necessarily vote Conservative again if your area has been left behind or continues to be left behind in that way? Yeah, it, 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 it's, a, it's a tough one. What's, what's behind the region, this massive regional divide? I don't mean the regional divide that we've seen for decades. I'm talking about the, the regional divide which seems to have cropped up in the last six months, particularly the east of England doing very well and the southwest do it doing very badly. It's quite it's quite stark, isn't it? Yes, I mean we're digging into these findings all the time. I think you know there's some macro effects going on, especially in the last six months. You know you've had inflation, you've had the cost of living mm. crisis, you've got Russia's war in Ukraine uh, pushing up energy bills and so on. So certainly the macro picture is tricky for the government, and you know whether you can you know reverse massive economic trends within your country, you know, London and the southeast being the powerhouse of the UK. Can you can you reverse those trends and and, and share some of that prosperity around the country? It's difficult when your kind of government capacity is overwhelmed by by these big issues so that's that's certainly a limiting factor for, for Sunak. One of the factors that you're tracking in this is is government spending or, or public spending involved and of course that's the easiest lever the government has to be able to pull when it ter- comes to boosting an area. What? How has the promise in terms of public spending played out in, in compared to the reality? Yeah, that's been one of the most surprising features of the scorecard in that London and the South East have seen their spend on public services grow faster than any other region in the UK. Now, you'd expect spending to be higher in London and the South East because things are more expensive, but why should the growth rate be higher? Similarly on transport funding, that's again an area where London and the South East has increased its advantage over, say, the North East compared to 2019. It's, it's, it's a striking figure, I think, in my mind, and, and, and you'd thought the government would, would change that. Now, we've talked about this being the, the second iteration of this scorecard since you produced the first one back in, back in May. Talk to us about what happened when that first scorecard went out. How did the government react, and has it actually prompted them to change anything in the way this project is being conducted? Yes, so the first scorecards received a fair amount of attention. I mean, multiple MPs raised it in Parliament. You know, Lisa Nandy, who's the shadow levelling up Secretary for Labour, she challenged the government directly on its findings. I think, if anything, it it provided a, a kind of data framework through which you can look at levelling up. I mean, I think a lot of uh, political focus in this country happens around what's going on in Westminster and the personalities and all the daily drama, whereas I think we, we're trying to bring a, a kind of a grounded empirical view on the whole country, on what, what, the, what the effects of British politics are on the whole country, and that's why we think it, it had that initial success, and that's why we hope to keep doing it and keep 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 providing these updates so that we can kind of effectively hold the government to account on, on their flagship promise. Does anyone actually believe that it's pos- possible to bridge the gap between essentially London and the South East and the rest of the country when, when you speak to people who are based in these areas that, that should be, uh, you know, looking at the data, being helped by this? Yeah, when I go out 
say on visits I've had to the north, there is a sense for north-south divide, and there's a sense of you know London always gets everything, the, like the, the south always gets everything. We're basically forgotten about up here, and that perception remains. I mean, I I, I I'm really yet to to visit a town or, or or a village in say the Red Wall, and people say yes, you know this government's really on our side, and this government's really delivering for us. I mean, I, I, I I'm yet to get that compelling sense uh, through my reporting. Um, obviously, Rishi Sunak hopes that will turn around before the next election. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's talk trains. After a brief respite, we're set for another two days of rail strikes next week, with drivers walking out on Wednesday and Friday across much of the network. But taking a step back, are Britain's railways in a bad state, and how do they really compare to other countries? Carla Hepke and I spoke to Bloomberg opinion columnist Matthew Brooker. We asked him why he's written on this subject. Well, I started out by really with the question, why are Britain's railways so uh, not better, not nicer than they are, uh, with quite a negative point of view. And I think as I, as I look further into it, I decided they weren't, they weren't really that bad. And, you know, I shouldn't be too unfair. I mean, there are bright spots. But I think when you look at the industry as a whole, it does have significant issues and challenges. Mm. Hang on a second. Uh, when you and Potts and I tried out the new, brand new Elizabeth line, I know it's not, it's a train, it's an underground system. But when we got onto that train, you and I, we were stunned at how wonderful the new infrastructure was. Yes, it took years to make, etc. But surely the trains are in a terrible state. How do they compare country to country? Why did you come out saying that things aren't quite so awful? Yeah, the Elizabeth line is very nice. Uh, I did go and ride it before writing this piece. Um, I think if you've come from Asia, though, I think anyone coming from Hong Kong who sees the Elizabeth line is to kind of shrug with indifference because it basically looks exactly like the MTR in Hong Kong. And in fact, it's run by the MTR in Hong Kong. They didn't build it, but they do operate the service. And yeah, you know, it's nice, big, spacious stations, wide platforms, comfortable carriages that they seem I'm not sure if they are but they seem bigger than your your average uh, train or underground uh, underground carriage but you know that's one line yeah. I mean, you know you, you, there's there's a lot more to the rail network than that and you know I I mean I I took the point of view obviously I'm British uh, but I haven't lived here for a long time I moved back last September after more than 30 years in Asia and so I took, you know, the kind of tried to take the perspective of an outsider, you know, of someone who's been used to the train systems in Asia coming here and, and, and what, you know, thinking what would they think of them? I don't think they'd be that impressed, actually. I, I, I do think it's a complicated picture, though, isn't it? I don't think that all the trains on the continent are fantastic. You've got some rural lines in France and, they're, and they are terrible. And some lines here actually work very well. And I think it's also fair to point out the privatisation has seen a huge uh, rise in the number of people using the railway. So it it is complex, isn't it? Oh, you know, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I have, I can remember riding the, the TGV in France 40 years ago and being kind of, wow, mm. this is uh, amazing. And, uh, you know, by all accounts, the TGV is still like very, very nice and it's, it's fast and efficient. But yes, you know, the, the rural 
um, train system in France has really got very serious problems. Uh, and you know, there's rising dissatisfaction in Germany, which I mm. think we all, we, you know, we always associate with engineering prowess mm -hmm. and and efficiency. So I, you know, I I I was comparing mostly with Asia. I mean, the UK still doesn't look particularly good on most surveys relative to the rest of Europe. But it's not like the rest of Europe is, apart from Switzerland, is really that great. I mean, it, it, you look at the, there was a survey of of um, railway efficiency in the World Economic Forum's World Competitiveness Report from 2019, I think. So it's a little bit out of date because it's obviously pre-pandemic, and mm -hmm. the pandemic has, has has changed a lot of things. Uh, but that had uh, the top five. Only one was in Europe, and that was Switzerland. I mean, it was okay. it went Japan, Hong Kong. Uh, South Korea and Singapore. All right. So, look, we've laid the groundwork then. Perhaps the UK is not an outlier within Europe, sort of struggling with the trains. But the complaint I always hear in France is that it's fine if you're going from Paris somewhere else. Mm. But actually, you know, if you're trying to get around some parts of France, then it's it's impossible. But look, there is an issue with privatisation. Um, and there does seem to be a growing sort of acceptance that the privatisation of the railways in the UK has not worked. And a lot of people are kind of trying to assign blame. So just tell us what's gone wrong and, and why. Yeah, I don't think this is even a, a debate right. because... You, you you know you 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 can you can argue about privatization whether privatization was right or wrong but when the party that itself privatized the railways uh describes it as being you know dysfunctional and full of perverse in incentives and unable to do the basics right like running the trains on time um, making it easy to buy a ticket, then why do you even need to argue? These are the people that decided to privatise the railways and did it in the way that they did. And they say it's a failure. So I think we can all accept that it has been a failure. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, not unmitigated failure. I mean, things have improved, as, as we say. And then there are parts of the rails that are very nice and function quite well. But overall, the system, you know, is... Uh, uh, the, the way that the, the railways were privatised yes. was clearly uh, flawed. This, this, this isn't about private sector bad, public sector good, though, is it? This is about no, a botched no. privatisation. This is about the, the... How can I say this without being rude? The very complicated uh, way in which the railways were privatised in the 90s uh, uh, by, the, by the Tories. Yeah. It's a, fa a fascinating I mean, example in your piece, isn't there, about uh, a huge number of people who are employed to assign blame when trains are late. Yeah, something like 400, um, I can't remember what they call them, train delay ad um, adjudicators or something like that, and whose job, in the words of the report itself, is to argue about whose fault a delay is. Because somebody um, has to pay. That's the bottom line. Well, that, that yes. Well, of course, if you had a vertically integrated structure, which would be far more rational, and which what you know, which is what the government is suggesting going back to, you wouldn't have an argument because you know, if the, if the train is late, it's the fault of the train company. At the moment, it isn't because you've got this separation between the rail infrastructure owner, network rail, and the you know, multiplicity couple of dozen of uh, of uh, train service operators. Mm. So then, look, I can understand that rail users, and you, it's regularly covered, are tearing their hair out in terms of trying to get a decent service. How is this unraveled? Is there a suggestion and a pathway forwards in terms of unraveling this, as you put it, sort of disastrous privatisation? 
yeah, I mean, there is a there is a plan. Uh, this was all in the um, William Shapps Rail Review that was published in 2021. Uh, and it's essentially, well, I mean, people deny, uh, the, 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 the government itself denies that this is going back to the old British Rail, the, the state-owned uh, monopoly operator that was privatised in the early 90s. And uh, I think, you know, even even people who are in favour of renationalisation don't regard this as a recreation of British Rail. But it seems like it to me. I mean, uh, it's it's going to be called Great British Railways. It's going to adopt the uh, double arrow logo of British Rail, which is so recognisable and is, you know, still still used on the rail system. Um, and, you know, essentially it's going to be one um, one company that owns the infrastructure and then, you know, uh, the, the, the difference would be, I mean, the, instead of having franchises where, you know, different companies compete to offer services and on, on um, different parts of the railway, um, Great British Railways would, would operate a concession model um, where they specify the fares and the timetables and, you know, they, then, then private, presumably private companies okay. will then operate those services. Um, <clears throat> is it going to happen? That's, that, that, that's my question. And we've come, come bogged down in, in these lengthy strikes and all sorts of other stuff. Mm. Is this going to happen before this government is out? It looks pretty unlikely, actually, because the Conservative Party is now arguing amongst themselves about about this plan. I mean, it, it seems that the more kind of um, purist free enterprise elements within the Conservatives don't like the idea of recreating this big state monolith, um, and so they 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 are they are trying to rewrite the plan to bring back franchising, which really is at the, the very heart of all the dysfunction uh, in, in British Rail. Okay. Uh, so he, there have been reports in the British local papers, uh, so, I mean the British national um, press, um, that this is happening and that it, it, it means that, I mean, we, we have to have an election, I think, by early 2025. Yes. You know, it's only two years away now, even if the, the, the revamped uh, blueprint uh, goes into action. It, it seems pretty unlikely that anything can happen by um, by the time of the next general election. Labour, the Labour opposition, Labour Party, is committed to renationalising the railways, and um, they may be in power by the time anything actually happens on this plan. So, Matthew, in the meantime, what happens to all of us humble uh, train riders? The ridership and the ticket prices—we're all just left hanging. Um, well, you know, if you if you live along the Elizabeth Line and commute into London, you're fine. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, it, it really, happy as you Larry. Know, <laughs> it all depends on where you are. Um, uh, but you know, for people like me who've, who've come back from Asia, we will at least learn in future to check the strike schedule because you know what prompted me to to write about this was 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 going down One to my local station train. and standing in the freezing rain. Uh, then looking up at the board and realise that no trains were running. Well, that was Bloomberg opinion columnist Matthew Brooker. OK, well, interesting. You and I know that you have a lot of opinions on trains. I do. I'm not going to talk, talk about them now because it could have gone for hours and hours <laughs> and nobody will be listening. Well, I, I mean, give us your one singular thought. What's your favourite train? 
I haven't got a favourite train. I'm not that nerdy. Oh, but right. uh, no, I do think it's a fascinating subject. And uh, I think a bit like the weather, Brits like to talk about the railways. They like to moan about them a great deal. But as Matthew was saying, they're not actually that bad compared to compared to some other railways. I'm going to wind you up for future train knowledge in the future, <laughs> but that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you use this. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Marifal Hussain was on sound. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.